Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my friend Dan Sakura. Dan is currently a law student at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he's interested in studying the law from a critical theory structuralist perspective. The podcast that you're about to hear is taken from like a four-hour conversation that Dan and I had a couple of nights ago. So the podcast is essentially a collage of different segments from that longer conversation. As Dan and I both make clear in the podcast, we're both what you might call anti-ideology or anti-ideologians. And we clarify what exactly we mean by that in the podcast. But if you had to subscribe an economic ideology to me, it would definitely be capitalism. And if you had to subscribe one to Dan, it would be Marxism. So in the first segment of the podcast, we go back and forth with respect to capitalism versus Marxism. And then in the second segment, I believe we talk about critical theory and structuralism and how Dan seeks to view the law through a critical theorist and structuralist lens. Then in the third segment, we talk some contemporary politics and the 2020 election. And then finally, in the last segment, we essentially just reflect upon the prior three segments and more explicitly cash out some of the similarities and differences between our worldviews. It's actually astonishing, given the notable differences between Dan and I, how many similarities there are. Like, for example, we both are really into existentialism as a philosophy, and we also both foresee the reality, the impending reality of automation in society, and are trying to figure out what the future should look like given that reality. So those are kind of two threads that run through our different philosophies, you might say. But I'll stop rambling and let the man speak for himself. Without further ado, I give you Dan Secura. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Let's let's just start with capitalism and start to divide up the conceptual landscape here. So just to make sure that we have similar understanding of what we're talking about. So capitalism, just the free exchange of goods and services through privately owned business. Right? Right. So we're talking about the economic system being driven by private and corporate ownership of goods. Right. And I, I would just add to that uh, uh, sort of core to capitalist theory is this understanding of of, uh, of labor and and capital. Right. You have you have. Uh, uh, labor and capital, which combine together to form any sort of like coherent system. And mm-hmm. necessarily, as, as you know, we, we experience capital mostly in these days as, uh, you know, the sort of baron who owns the factory and owns all of the all of the tools in the factory and then essentially is loaning that capital, those tools to the labor in order to produce goods and, and right. services and various other uh, other, you know, nuanced elements. Right, right. Yeah, so I want to talk about Marxist critiques of capitalism before diving into his Marxist utopian vision that he th- wants to replace yeah. capitalism with. So, well, first, I guess just to say a few things in favor of capitalism, because if you're going to ask me, I'm definitely on the pro-capitalist side. And some of the basic talking points that people usually go to is that it's the best system that we have. It's not perfect. It's lifted more people out of poverty, including in third world countries than any other economic system in history. And it's responsible for all the material luxury that the majority of us experience in the contemporary world. And also the other systems when implemented, particularly communism, have just led to death 
and destruction, right? So these are just some of the main yeah. points that are often bring up, brought up in favor of capitalism. I think where I'm at, just to lay my cards on the table, is in reviewing some marks for this podcast, I really agree with a lot of his capitalist or his, a lot of his critiques of capitalism, but I don't agree with what he replaces it with, with his Marxist ideological replacement. Sure, sure, yeah, and 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 that's it's interesting to frame that in in you know this contemporary moment, and that's that's where Sartre and Camus had their famous divide was because Sartre decided to commit to to not just communism but Stalinism specifically, um, which you know a lot of people have various issues with, including me. I'm I'm certainly not a tanky or a Stalinist, whatever you want to call him. Um, right. So just but, to clarify, Sartre yeah. was on the pro-communist left. Camus was yes. on the anti-communist left. Well, and and. That, that's that's where that sort of distinction gets a little interesting and a little muddy because Camus generally, uh, as I'm sure you know, like rejects labels and he rejected the whole existentialist label, even though he's yes. famously known as one of the most famous existentialists. He rejected um, the philosopher label. Yeah, exactly. And and so his his whole his whole thing was a rejection of ideology generally. And so Camus wasn't you know necessarily an anti-communist. He was an anti-ideologian, whatever you want to call it. He was anti-ideology, and and so and so for him it wasn't. It, it was a question of why commit to something uh, like Stalinism that is brutal simply because it's the better alternative to capitalism, right? And and that was Sartre's whole idea was that you know it's not perfect, but this is the best we have given you know given what we're up against. Um, and so so I, I'd like to definitely address that that first uh, that first like uh, contemporary um, capitalist you know thought that yes it is the best system we've had in history. It's certainly better than feudalism, sure, but. I, I think I think to lock ourselves into like if, if we had been born, you know, 500, 600 years ago when the feudalist system was really like popping and everything was going great, we right. might we might have the same the same feelings. Right. We might say that, oh, feudalism is the way it is. And this is the way the world works. This is the best system we have. This is the best thing we've devised. So we're going to stick with it. And then capitalism would have never happened. Right. And and so I I don't I don't think generally that. I, yeah, I, I think it's I think it would be hubris to say that, you know, communism is the best system or, or, or Marxism is the best system. But I think it's a logical starting point, uh, especially given the, the the historicity, given given the, the age we live in and the, this this moment we're poised in. Uh, I, I think for me, it comes down really. And this is this is where I first got sort of these Marxist beliefs was actually, I guess, really freshman year of college when I read <laughs> Thomas Piketty's uh, Capitalism in the 21st Century. Um, because I started to get a, a look at the sort of this moment that we're poised in, this sort of this sort of burgeoning automation, right? And right. like like we've talked about, capitalism functions by accumulation of wealth, right? It functions by a capitalist, and a smart capitalist would do this. Like regardless, is gonna is gonna try and reduce the labor that they have to pay, because especially as you know, we live in a we live in a society, and labor necessarily <laughs> needs to be taken care of, and as, as you know, as silly as that sounds, it's 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 labor has to exist in the world. And so there are things that uh, the capitalists must provide for their laborers. As we get more more and more automated over time, we don't really need the laborer anymore. And in, in fact, the laborer becomes an expense for the capitalist. Um, so at the right. end of the day, if, if you're if you're a smart businessman, if you're a good capitalist, you're going to cut as many workers as you can and you're going to have as, as efficient as a factory as possible. Problem with that is that wealth that's being generated is going to one place and one place alone, that capitalist's bank, that, that capitalist wallet, right? They are, 
the the idea of capitalism and the reason why it functioned for years and years and years was this idea of uh, labor was center, right? Labor was 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 huge. You could you could as an individual uh, accumulate and produce wealth, and you would get that value back, right? You you would it's that whole Lockean labor theory, right? You produce something of value, you get the value for it. That simply just isn't the case anymore, I think. And and that's that's part of the the, the future problem that we're going to run into is that. You know, as soon as as soon as everything's fully automated, I don't think automation is a bad thing. I, I yeah. want to be on the record about that. I want to talk about uh, that too, the problem yeah. automation and the problems that that poses for society. Um, it, it only poses a problem for me, uh, like economically, when we have this mass accumulation of wealth in one direction, because we're not going to be able to. It, it's just pra- like practically, the the laborer won't be able to then go to the store and buy these goods that are being produced on this mass scale. Because there there aren't any jobs, there aren't any people working in the world, right? Um, and yeah, and so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Let me let me back up for a second. There's just a lot in what you just said, so I just want to yeah. parse some of it. So the first the first point I think you made was just that we're all prisoners of the moment. We're all inevitably products of the historical cultural time period that we're embedded in, and it is really hard to step outside of that and to imagine other systems that might be possible, or to imagine how life might get better. And because That's of that, exactly it's easy it, yeah. just to take for granted the system that we're in already, right? And then, yeah, so then getting to some of Marx's critiques, one of them that you already mentioned is that as the capitalist system becomes more efficient, we're going to be able to automate a lot of these jobs and labor is not going to be as necessary anymore. Well, I guess let me actually zoom out even further and just give you my basic understanding of Marx, because I definitely don't consider myself a Marx scholar. And you can correct me wherever I stumble and tell me whether this is kind of an accurate understanding of what Marx is up to. So my understanding is he has this thesis of historical materialism, where he thinks that the development of history is really driven by the material conditions of human societies, as opposed to ideologies. And this leads him to kind of advocate for a necessity of history hypothesis, where you have these different economic systems logically giving way to the next system. So he thought that capitalism was one iteration in this logical change of economic development. Capitalism proceeded from feudalism and then would eventually give rise to socialism and in the end, communism, right? So that's kind of like his basic uh, perspective on how history unfolds. 1848, he comes out with the Communist Manifesto with his colleague Frederick Engels. Engels, is that it? Engels. 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 Yeah. Right. Another one of my favorites. Yeah. So in the Communist, so, so he lays out all these critiques of capitalism before again sketching his utopian vision of a Marxist society. So I just want to go over and parse some of these critiques one by one. One of them, which I think you began to touch upon there, was the idea that capitalism leads to alienation and atomization. Yep. And That's a big one. That's a big one. Yeah, this is a huge one. And I think this is where it connects up with existentialism, too, where Marxism connects up with existentialism. Because in Marxist's and his ideal utopia, the idea is that you don't have to become a role. You don't have to play some role in the cognitive machine that is society. You can wake up one day and do one thing. You can wake up another day and do another thing and manifest all of the different myriad parts of your nature. And what I really like about that particular critique of capitalism, which I think holds a lot of weight, is that it does connect up with my fundamental existentialist principles of authenticity and not living in bad faith. Because the whole idea of existentialism and not living in bad faith is not playing a role. Right. Right. And even if it's playing the role of the person that you think you are, you're still 
putting yourself in this conceptual box. I'm this person. I am a waiter. I am a waiter, right? Yeah, that's a classic example. And then you're living in accordance with that role. So you're not being authentic. You're not manifesting the human freedom that resides within you that can be manifested. And so that's that's one critique of capitalism that really resonates a lot with me because I think it does have a tendency to lead that to that kind of atomization. And that's that's exactly why Sartre committed to, to communism generally was because of that. It's alienation comes in so many forms under capitalism. We are not only alienated from ourself, from from our potentiality from our facticity. We're, we're alienated from all of these different things. We're alienated from even other people in society because capitalism has certain functions that necessarily separate people and put people in certain positions uh, through which you might never interact with somebody outside of that scope. So we, we, are, right. we are alienated in a number of ways and, and it's, it's, it's daunting, it's horrible. Well, just riffing on that a little more, the other day, bro, I saw this advertisement on Amazon about them coming out with a grocery store. So you can have yeah. just groceries. You can just have robots delivering groceries to your house so you never have to go to the grocery store, right? So yep. again, it goes along with the whole idea that these common social spaces, which we all used to occupy, grocery stores, malls, we're not there anymore because we don't need to go there because of capitalism and the ease in which it provides material goods to our doorsteps. Yeah. Oh, you don't have to leave your home. You don't ever have to leave your home. You don't, yeah, you, it's the whole world could just be delivered to you. You, you could theoretically work from home every single day and you could have everything delivered and you could just never leave. And then you have agoraphobia and you're stuck inside for the rest of your life. And also, which I think you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, what Marx saw as the capitalist cr- class, they're always going to be incentivized within the capitalist system to shrink the wages of laborers as much as possible. So or eliminate them. Yeah. Right. So from a capitalist perspective, this would be ingenuity. Oh, you're getting profits. But from a Marxist perspective, it's stealing and exploitation of the proletariat. Right. Essentially. And then commodity fetishism is another thing leads to people putting these economic issues at the center of your life to the detriment of real human relationships. Right. Um, Yeah. So, again, I find myself like it's so crazy, man. I find myself agreeing with so many of these capitalist critiques. But then I also find myself agreeing with the pro capitalist narrative that this is the best system that we have or it's the least worst system. And frankly, and this is just a comment on utopias, I guess. I feel like it's very dangerous to directly try to implement a utopia because I feel like the line between utopia and dystopia is often very thin. And if you go directly for the utopia, that can lead to a dystopia. And let me just say a few other things that you can yeah. respond as, as much as you want. So like, just take the Marxist utopia for a second. Marx, Marx saw time off leisure time as being potentially a good thing and not a bad thing. But in the capitalist society, we see that as a bad thing if you have more than four weeks of leisure. And I guess my point or my worry about the Marxist utopia is that human beings will inevitably tie our meaning in life to our work. So this utopia where we don't have to work might actually not be a utopia because there's this internal crisis of meaning that people are having. And then, so that's the Marxist utopia. The capitalist utopia, which is defined by material luxury, ostensibly it could be a utopia, but it's not if you have all of these problems of alienation and atomization that we're talking about. So I guess from one point of view, something can be a utopia, from another it can be a dystopia. Well, so so I I think I want to start off um, my response with sort of- a, Sorry, I know a, I just a, threw a shit on that. Oh, no, no, you're good. I I, I think I, I have I have a couple of points in mind. 
but but so I, I wanna I wanna sort of contend and wrestle with this idea of utopia. And I some people might disagree with me, but Marx really was not a utopia was not about a utopia necessarily. Uh, he, his whole philosophy was essentially that again we are pushing towards this historical moment where inevitably there's a the rising up of the proletariat and then we inevitably through this massive process and an extremely painful thing we reorganize economically and we have this sort of marxist communist uh, sort of redistribution of of, of resources um right. in some sense mm -hmm. um so I, I don't i don't think marx himself was necessarily uh, utopian and I, I know that's it's commonly framed that way and there are utopian marxists um who, you know, look at this and, and, and do say that, oh, we will generate a utopia, blah, blah, blah. But I, I don't think he was necessarily about that. Um, and so and so I, I think what I'm getting at with that point is that I don't like I said, I don't think that communism is the end. You know, I, I think it's a logical starting point for for where we go next. Um, okay. I do. Th I, I do think there is a historicity to it. I do think there is there is some reality to uh, a lot of what Marx was saying about this this process of history and this process of of it uh, essentially breaking down in some way and eventually us getting to to sort of like communism. Um, Did Marx think it was the end though? Communism was the final so I, final system to be implemented, and then we would reach the so-called end of history or whatnot. I. I think he thought so to some extent, but I also think that's hubris, and I think that's it's the same, it's the same trap that uh, that Hegel fell into. It's the same trap that you know some of these the most brilliant philosophers of uh, the world uh, fallen into is that they do think they're the end of philosophy or whatever. And and I I it's been a little while since I've I've really sat down and, and read some Marx. I you know years since I've really delved into Communist Manifesto again or Das Kapital. Um, and he is, again, that's even saying those two works are really not representative of his entire body of work because he has a lot of really, really great, uh, uh, essentially, articles uh, that he mm -hmm. released uh, to, to drum up support and everything. And he was also not just, you know, people assume he was this armchair philosopher. He was out doing stuff all the time. He was all about trying to, like, generate the revolution um, to some extent. And and so I was getting somewhere with this. Uh, yeah, yeah. So 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 for me, uh while maybe he did consider himself, you know, the end of philosophy or history or whatever, I, I really think there's a lot of room there to improve. And and that's something that uh, one of the early influences in my sort of as I bring this to the law, uh, there's this guy, Roberto Unger, who is a, a really prominent uh, legal theorist, but also just a generally uh, a theorist of, of, uh, of everything. You know, he, he is he is this dude who thinks he knows everything and he's very, very smart. His works are great. I think they're very influential for me. but. Um, but part of what he gets at is that there is this mass democratic movements can produce things that we cannot anticipate at all. Mm -hmm. and, and so for me, we only get to a mass democratic participation when we do remove ourselves from economic dependency on capitalism, for example. Like I said, I, I agree with a lot of his diagnosis of capitalist ills, but from what I've read and from my understanding of it, Socialism and communism isn't the way to go, again, because while it sounds good in theory, when it has been practically implemented by, and we can talk about the typical figures here, Mao, Stalin, it's led to death and destruction, to which the typical rejoinder is, well, they've never truly implemented it yet, or the conditions weren't right for it to be implemented. There's a lot of philosophical baggage with all of this, but but if we take it to a just an economic standpoint, um, you know, I really think uh, one thing. So, well, I, I guess I'll start off with this. Uh, one thing is, is you know, Lenin, who 
obviously was like, you know, the big vanguard of the Soviet Union, whatever. He was very upset with the way the revolution actually wound up. Uh, he was he was pissed. He knew he failed because they weren't able to get. And this is the notion of the vanguard class. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with that term, but that's that's one I'm of the not, big no. big terms in Marxism is. So the idea is that there's this vanguard class that you have to send in to completely dismantle uh, whatever system you're in. Right. Um, is that the, just idea, the proletariat? Sort of, but it, it's it's complicated, and I think a lot of people have uh, various opinions on what the vanguard class really is. But uh, the idea at the time was kind of that it would almost—it's a little elitist, uh, in, in my in my view, um, because it is the idea that it's going to be almost a series of experts go in and like you know screw it all up and, and take it all down. Because the idea is that you can't just elect a new president, right? That's not going to change anything. There's no way to just like even if I was God King, you know. Yeah. Well, well, adding God to that makes me way more powerful and I could probably do it. But but if, if you know, if you just elect me president, Dude, you can do the, it now, bro. Start the revolution. <laughs> if, I, if I was God King, I'd do it in a day. But uh, but there are realities yeah. to to being, you know, it, it, whatever system you're in, you're not going to be able to upend things. You know, I'm a big Sanders guy, but and and I, I think it'll be great. And if, if, if we can get him in, but it's not going to change. Yeah, it's not a revolution. Contemporary politics a little later on <laughs> to get out of the ideological forest. That's oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, but but like like I said, like I don't he's not going to actually change any like those substantial changes that need to be made. Things need to be upset. And 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 that's why Lenin during the revolution, they didn't send in the vanguard class like he had hoped. And so they didn't dismantle the system. They just took yeah. the pieces that they had and they tried to, like, retool them to, to work towards communism. But am I yeah. correct in thinking that Lenin was the first one to actually try to practically implement Marx's ideology? Because Marx never lived to see the day of his ideologies being implemented or being uh, well, trying to well, There's, there's a, there's a, I, I, I need to reread up on it, but there is this, uh, the Paris Commune, um, which Marx and Engels had helped orchestrate in, in Paris and was a massive failure, but not massive, but, um, but they, they had tried to implement this essentially, this full communist movement in, in, in Paris, and it was this whole bloody conflict and all this stuff, um, yeah. and, and that I think points to the reality of, of the situation. I mean. Again, like, say what you will, but I, I really think that part of the big failure of communism and what we call communism is that we were stuck in this binary. We were stuck in this 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 oppositional framework where you have capitalism on one side and communism on the other. And we have all these like understandings of that debate and that divide, but we only have a Western understanding. You know, you and me are born in the United States and we interact in these various ways. We don't actually really have all the data. We don't really understand what was going on. Um, but there's, there's no, I mean, it's the same Cuba was, has been relatively successful and amazing and, 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 and has popped off in, in, a, in a relatively good sense. Um, even uh, despite, uh, despite the fact that they got embargoed the hell out of by the United States and the United States tried numerous times to overthrow. We, we only have, you know, we've heard of the Bay of Pigs and whatever, but there are yeah. so many things we haven't even heard about, like these crazy missions and all this stuff, you know, you know what the U S government will do. Um, yeah, but I just have to admit my ignorance when it comes to the Cuba situation. I just don't know anything about that, really. But but just in terms of how well they're doing, I hear different things from different voices on the right. But maybe this is a good time to bring in the yeah. distinction between communism and anarcho-communism, just since you're talking about the revolution and how exactly the revolution is supposed to unfold. So one question I had is, what exactly separates these two different kinds of uh, philosophy. So just let me just again put my understanding of it on the table and then you can fix it or add to it. My understanding is Marx wanted what he called the capital, the capitalist class to 
or sorry, he wanted the proletariat, the working class to overthrow the capitalist class, right? Going back to what we were right. talking about, you have the capitalist class exploiting the working class, the working class, they're the ones actually doing all the labor. But right. then you have this capitalist class that is just getting rich of the backs of the labor of the working class. So he wanted, he advocated for a revolution and eventually he wanted, um, he wanted the, the, the working class to take over. And, and my understanding is that the difference between his communist state and anarcho-communism is that he did want in his communist state there is still a state there's a right. there's, there's there's one state that's controlled by the proletariat right but when it comes to anarcho-communism they're actually advocating the total abolition of the state so just to read a quote here quote in place of those institutions and systems anarcho-communist calls for as it does its ideological competitor marxism common ownership or at least control of the means of production Unlike Marxism, however, which advocates a dictatorship of the proletariat in the right. way that I just described, anarcho-communism opposes all bosses, hierarchy, and domination. So right. it's just a difference over whether they think there should be a state or not, essentially. Essentially, yeah, and and yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's a pretty succinct explanation. Um, and 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 that's really part of anarchist theory is. Uh, Abolition of hierarchy to some extent, and I, I know that's people who are anarcho-communists might very much disagree with that statement. But I, I, I think that's an essential part of it: is is that hierarchy is necessarily damning, and that's and that's where you get to you know the critiques of Stalinism was that it was an authoritarian philosophy. It's not communism; it's strictly authoritarian. Um, and well, it, it, it kind of dovetails with what with your critique, your um, elitist critique that you were just talking about, right? You're right. saying we're going to get these experts to come in and they're going to fix things. But now you have these so-called experts that are just completely running things. That seems authoritarian right. and elitist. Yeah, exactly. And and that's, that's you know, the anarchist in me is, is that elitism I don't think is healthy and necessary. And, and that hierarchy is not always good. I think a lot of people say, you know, hierarchy exists in nature. It's just a natural part of the system, whatever system we're in. But I also think that there is a failure of imagination in the sense that we, we we don't have any idea what a real like anarcho commune can look like in the future. Like we 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 have we have some ideas. Um, there are some uh, success stories to anarcho communist communities. Uh, Nestor Machno was almost a success, a success story in uh, in Ukraine, um, but mm. had gotten uh, had had oh my memory is failing me. But it was uh, they got moved on by the Soviet Union essentially and crushed. His entire movement got crushed. Um, so uh, putting on my pro capitalist hat. So what do you do with the fact that or what do you do with arguments to the conclusion that capitalism actually is the best system at using the market resources efficiently because of the competition that it fosters? Because the capitalist system will punish any private entity which fails to satisfy its customers, which fails to use its resources efficient, efficiently, the capitalist system will punish that and drive those businesses out of the market and only the best businesses that meet the consumer's demands and that have the best high quality products are going to flourish in the market. And that's going to lead to a better outcome and more innovation for everyone. And, and see, I, I, I push back there because I don't really think or see that as the functioning of capitalism. I mean, are we using technology right now that is the product right. of capitalism? I know that's kind of another cliche point to make, but it's true. I got this blue Mike Yeti. I got this <laughs> nice ass Mac. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, but at the same time, there is no like like one. I think there is you know no. We have never experienced a, a full you know full communism or whatever. Full stop. Full anarcho communism. Um, 
And to mm. say that humans, I, I won't go into innateness. I, I don't think nature needs to play a role in this, but we are still creative, right? We, we humans generate things. We generate the ideas and philosophies and material things in the world. Um, yeah. And, and to say that we're not, we're suddenly going to stop being creative simply because we no longer have a monetary incentive. I, I, I think is a, almost a disservice to, to human ingenuity, right? I mean, we're still going to be making MacBooks, dude. We're still going to be doing all this crazy shit, but it's going to be for, for a different purpose. It's not going to be monetary incentive. I, I mean, we're still going to want to go to space. You know, we're still going to want to do these things. And there are still ways to organize and do that. We can pool resources in ways that are going to be intelligent and also ways that are going to be fair to the environment. Because, because like, you know, like we just mentioned, yep. capitalism functions by accumulation. And the best capitalists are people who can uh, uh, accumulate more and produce more. And yep. when you're, you know, tearing down thousands of acres of forest and, and starving the earth and, and, and doing all these things that are harmful simply because we want to overproduce because people are going to buy a new pair of shoes or some stuff, you know, I, I, I think that's a, a disservice to, to, to people and be a disservice to our world that we are naturally intertwined with. What is, what is structuralism? What do you mean by structuralism? So essentially, I guess if I if I had to boil it down, it's it's a definitely a loaded question. But if I had to uh, if I had to boil structuralism down, um, I would say essentially it's it's a demystification, a process of demystification of how a thing in the world comes to function. Right. Saucer has this massive influence because because of uh, essentially his study of, of language and words tells you that words have meaning based on their relation. And, and so that's important. That's huge because relation and difference are core to also Claude Lévi-Strauss's methodology, right? So people were looking at the family unit and they were looking at these anthropological studies of, of cultures over, you know, years, you know, thousands of years, whatever. And they were saying, okay, a mom and dad produce a son. And it's, it's that, that like linear connection that gives you an understanding of a society and a culture. Claude Lévi-Strauss said, wait, 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 wait a second. Okay. We have a bunch of relationships at the core of this. Isn't, isn't some, isn't some number, isn't some, isn't some genealogy, right? It, it's not, it's not a genealogical premise. Instead, it's based and founded upon relationships. So that, that's, that's kind of his big initial blow up to the entire field of anthropology that everyone says, whoa, this is insane because he says it's, it's the way you're, you're, you're born into a world. Sure. You are, you are a son, but you are a son to a mother, a son to a father. You are also, oh. that's, yeah, he, call, he calls it the, uh, he specifically looks at the uncle relationship. He thinks that's the, the biggest, the, the uncle, uh, uncle firstborn relationship. He okay. calls it the avuncular, I, I believe. Um, well, okay. That's fascinating. Yeah. I think I understand. Let, let me just summarize to make sure I understand. So the basic idea, again, you have this dude, Levi Strauss, and yeah. He's taking these insights from structural linguistics and applying them to culture. And one insight from linguistics that he picks up on is that world, words don't have meaning in isolation. They only have meaning in terms of how they're related to other words within this greater linguistic network. And the same thing is true for culture. And that's yes. the fundamental insight, that if you actually think about different aspects of culture and the particular aspect that you were dr drilling down on was kinship relations. Exactly. You're a brother in virtue of how you're related to other members of your family within this kinship network, just as it works with language. And I know that he also gave very influential analyses of things like mythology as well. Yeah, 
And that's I love to I, I love his take on uh, mythology, but Roland Barthes also has an awesome take on on mythology, and he's also a structuralist. Um, Dude, I definitely understand better now though what you just yeah. that point about relations. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's why I say I think that's a great point to start with structuralism because that's so core to our understanding of uh, interaction. It's it's all relational. It's all about these core relationships. And and Levi Strauss says this is the atom of the family unit. It's not yeah. the atom of a family unit isn't mom, dad, son. It's mother, son, mother, dad, dad, son, uncle, son. And and you you can you can draw these connections because again we only experience the world through these relationships. You don't you don't come into the world and and immediately atomize each individual unit of the family, right? You right. experience your mom as your mom to you, the son, and you experience right. your dad as dad relation to son, and dad as he relates to every other member of the family, and and so it's those core relationships that define his understanding of kinship, and that was huge in the field of anthropology at the time. Yeah, can I throw yeah. some criticisms of structuralism at please, you and get do. your response? Please do. <laughs> Some main criticisms of structuralism, lack of empiricism. Many have argued that Lavage Strauss uh, regards empirical reality as irrelevant. Structural two, structural explanations are immune from falsification. They can't be replicated. Three, I'm just going to throw all of them at you. Yeah, yeah. Structural explanations make statements that are supposedly valid for all cultures, but it does so on the basis of relatively few examples. Yeah, it's universalizing is, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a so huge critique, yeah. Right, universalizing, um, immune from falsification, lack of empirical reality. So I guess the overarching critique here is it seems to be pseudoscientific in a sense. Right, and and there's and that and that's it's it's funny it's funny you say the pseudoscientific um, because specifically the actually the what we call social sciences generally um, and the reason we call it social sciences started with Saussure because he almost had a scientific process. To, to deconstruct this. And, and that's, that kind of ties into one of the other big critiques is that structuralism is generally viewed as uh, anti-humanism, right? It's, it's this, it's this systemization of people and it's this way we interact in these various different ways. And, and that's actually where I love to get into the post-structuralists because I think like, I think they address that very well. And I think, I, I think generally the idea with, with, and even to say post-structuralism again is, is kind of a hotly debated term because it's not, real right it started with it started with Derrida but Derrida said wait a second no I'm not a post-structuralist I'm still a structuralist I'm just bringing these critiques he brought those exact critiques right. to the field and everyone was like yo you're a post-structuralist now so he was like okay whatever now um, I'm a post-structuralist post bro <laughs> exactly so, <laughs> so how do people how do people usually cash out the distinction between structuralism and post-structuralism really I, I think Derrida is the moment where where you kind of and and so again for me I think where my research is going I'm it's it, it's a broad it's a broad category to lump people in, but I really think that anything in situated in the postmodern era, uh, I would call post-structuralism, just simply because it's structuralism situated in post-modernity, right? It's mm -hmm. it's it's structuralism past all of these things, and it, so it's, it's just a, that's just a temporal point, right? Exactly, and it, but but also I think there is there is a difference to it in the sense that I think a lot of post-structuralists try to situate. Uh, situate structuralism in in context, and I think that's huge, and, and that's where we get sort of the birth of post-colonial studies, post-racial studies, gender and queer studies, and all these things, um, because because there is a context to everything, and I and and, and that's what the post-structuralists want to you know want to say. Wait a second, we need to we need to reevaluate things from this other lens, and that's where you get I think a really important shift to a lot of 
uh, non-Western philosophy and non-Western critiques of, of society generally and, and these various different things, um, which I, I think, again, if, if you're going to be any good philosopher, I really think you have to look at uh, non-Western philosophy because, like I said, to box yourself in any one system and any one understanding yeah. of the world will only give you one diluted perspective. And that, that yeah, was I mean, part of part of Derrida's like huge criticism was that, right. well, OK, well, we can only interact. And this this gets into Deleuze, too, which I love. I love Deleuze. But um, we can only interact using these tools that we've inherited. So how can we properly critique things if we're stuck using the language and the tools that we inherit? If they're necessarily broken tools, how are we able to communicate these ideas? And that was Deleuze's criticism of philosophy. Right. How can you change yeah. the system if you're trapped in the system and can, can actually transcend it? Exactly. And that was, you know, Deleuze's central critique of philosophy generally was that, uh, oh, wait a second, all these philosophers, you know, are, are, are coming up with these ideas and debating these terms, but they're not painting the correct or full picture. It's because philosophers can only ask questions based on Western tradition, right? Philosophy has for the longest time, and that's where we get the branches of existentialism and all these various other Western philosophies is, well, we've been inheriting them from strictly this Western like train of thought. And yeah. that's, that becomes a problem with historicity when for thousands of years, we've only been going in one direction using one set of tools derived from one set of tools. And so you're just funneling in this one direction, this tight little, tight little box. And that's the only way you can speak and interact. Yeah, I think that point about the need to engage with non-Western philosophies is really important. And frankly, I think one of the biggest problems with academia nowadays is that there's so much pressure to become an expert in some very narrow area, right? So you get confined in this conceptual room and you get, you're given a few conceptual tools and then they're like, all right, play with those tools. And you're like, wait, I wanna go into the other room over there or maybe a whole nother building over there of non-Western philosophy. And it's like, no, you yeah. stay with those tools and you play with them. And exactly. you make a PhD. <laughs> like, yo, what the hell, man? I want to play with some of their tools. But they're like, no, no, no. If you want to publish, if you want to get published, you got to become an expert in this one little conceptual yep. room. So yep. I think there's, yeah, it's so important to um, not only engage with different disciplines other than philosophy, if I'm a philosopher, but also right. engage with different philosophies, non-Western philosophies in the way that you suggest. And Critical theory, it seems, really embodies that by taking all of these different conceptual tools and ideologies and kind of weaving them together, it seems like. And, and right, so you've already put one conceptual tool on the table, and we've defined it, right. structuralism. So yeah, let's get to critical theory, and then we can kind of tie up all these ideologies. Yeah. We can mix in structuralism and Marxism. So here, well, I guess I'll let you define it. What's, what is critical theory? <laughs> so I've actually... Or should I give, I was going to give like a standard definition that I got from the Stanford Encyclopedia and let you add to it or revise it. So I assume the Stanford Encyclopedia definition is probably confined to Horkheimer and Adorno um, and the initial Frankfurt School, um, more or less, right? Um, yeah, it actually makes a distinction between the two. So it says, right. I'll just read it. Critical theory has a narrow and a broad meeting. And I think the, <clears throat> the narrow reading is the one that you were just talking about, the Frankfurt School. Has a narrow and broad meaning in philosophy and in the history of the social sciences. Critical theory in the narrow sense designates several generations of German philosophers and social theorists in Western European Marxist tradition known as the Frankfurt School. According to these theorists, a critical theory may be distinguished from a traditional theory according to a specific practical purpose. A theory is critical to the extent that it seeks to 
It seeks humans emancipation from slavery, acting as a liberating influence, and works to create a world in which satisfies the needs and powers of human beings, end quote. And that's actually a direct quote from Orkheimer at yeah. the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and so, and so critical theory, capital letters, uh, refers exclusively to the Frankfurt School and, and that, that iteration. So okay. I, th- I think I, I, I would, so I would start here with Marx has this general conception of critique, right? And from that, a lot of uh, various critiques are derived. But, but we get to the Frankfurt School and Horkheimer and Adorno took his concept of critique and, and said exactly that, that critique is, is associated with liberation, right? It's, it's, it's freedom from various uh, tombs of enslavement. Um, and for them, this was, this was material, right? This was freedom from economic necessity, freedom from uh, this, 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 and even saying material is hugely debated because Marxists each have their own unique take on materialism, which is so wild. Um, but these, these essentially Horkheimer and Adorno and the early iterations of the Frankfurt School uh, were, were concerned with liberation from material needs. And right. so the way, the way I've framed, um, and this is kind of novel, so people definitely might disagree with me, but, uh, but this is sort of the beginning of my research because, because like you said, there's, there is a broad meaning, but nobody's really explored too much of what that means. And so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking critical theory as this broad umbrella field, not field, but this 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 broad uh, uh, interaction of various different uh, sort of philosophies, I almost want to say. Uh, so essentially, again, we start uh, we start with Marxism, right? And when we get this critique, uh, this idea of critique, this this you know uh, that extends into the Frankfurt School and critique of of these material conditions in which we live. Uh, and so the cr- critique is just the critiques of capitalism that we began the podcast with. And and ideology, actually. Uh, Marx has a really good critique of ideology uh, that has that took off and, and has been really worked on in a bunch of really cool different ways. Um, but so, so my research starts there. And, and we, we start at Marx. We have this moment. Uh, obviously, Marx was sort of in some sense responding to Hegel. But Marx is a really unique moment in history that gave us all of these other things. I then move to ex- existentialism because I see a lot of existentialist influences in modern critical theory. Um, Specifically, you know, I start with the typical Kierkegaard, Heidegger, Nietzsche. Um, and then another category I jump into is psychoanalytics, uh, because Freud was massively influential on both structuralism and uh, uh, con- critical theory more broadly. Um, linguistics is another is another uh, category I have. And then science and tech studies, uh, which I can get to in a bit. Um, it's a relatively new field. But I'm also experimenting with essentially I have this massive map of what I call critical theory. Uh, and I'm sort of experimenting with where these bubbles go and where these thoughts go, because a lot of these various fields and critical movements, uh, I think that's a great way to critical movements, I think, is, is what I would want to call that. Um, but they interact in various different ways. Right. Like like I would honestly probably I'm going to lump anarchist theory under the Marxist umbrella because it's it's also sort of concerned with uh, liberation from material concerns. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and so I think. And I'm going to be changing this term uh, as I as I go along. But what I've started to call critical theory is liberation ideology. Uh, and even using the term ideology, I'm not super comfortable with right now, but it sort of is in some sense an ideology. Um, but I call it liberation ideology because these different manifestations of, of critical thought, right? These different yeah. uh, uh, people who were critical of, of various different structures, each has their own unique uh, almost version uh, or, or, or form through which they may achieve freedom. Right. Mm-hmm. So with Marx, it was a material concern. It was the material world that we live and interact with freedom from those material necessities for the existentialists. It was it was almost freedom from 
freedom from these various systems of, of, of religion almost. It's, it's a very, it invokes a lot of like religious sense, right? And religious sensibilities. And it's freedom from these, these various uh, confined boxes through which we understand our concept of being, right? It's almost right. Freedom, freedom from, yeah, being put in these conceptual boxes. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and then psychoanalytics is almost, uh, especially when you get into the structuralist movements, particularly like Lacan, I think is yeah. a really great, a really great read on this. Um, it's almost this liberation from these unconscious structures, right, that define our day to day existence. There's this there's this cognitive generation and output that we that we produce day to day. But again, we are confined to certain patterns of thought and, and certain modes of thinking. And, and, and so psychoanalytics sort of is concerned with this, again, this freedom from, from unconscious systems. Uh, mm. And then linguistics is also concerned with freedom from unconscious systems, but also concerned with the ways in which those manifest in the real world and kind of dictate how we act and interact. So linguistics is essentially freedom from these unconscious uh, tools of interaction and structures that define our concept of the world and our way to like view the world, right? Um, and then science and tech studies is almost, uh, liber again, liberation of unconscious structures, but other biases that we find ourselves in. Um, sort of this idea that science is science, right? Science is completely impartial, objective, totally true. Um, and so almost a rejection of that and a, and a critique of that and a, a reevaluation of, of this sort of things we take for granted, right? And yeah, and, yeah, I was just going to paraphrase to make sure I'm understanding. So there's this distinction between critical theory, capital C, critical theory, lowercase c, capital C referring specifically to the Frankfurt School and what right. they are up to. You noted that when it comes to critical theory, lowercase c, there's a lot of ambiguity surrounding the concept as to what exactly it entails. And your project is to kind of try to come up with a unified understanding of what a critical theory is and you're 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 drawing to all of these different fields of study and you're noting that they each have this common critical theory element and that critical theory element can be stated by saying that they're all seeking to some sort of liberation right and right. that's the common thread that kind of unites all of the ideologies exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and 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 I, yeah i think that's a great way to to sum it up um and I would also say, and I, I think I mentioned this previously, but uh, demystification is an important part of this process. And that's specifically where I invoke more structuralist language um, mm. in this sort of big map uh, of, of, of critical theory. Um, but you do, you do, it is very, very much concerned with demystification of everyday life, right? A demystification of the way in which we interact. Like it, it's, it's removing those blinders that, that, and and not, I guess, not even removing them, but showing them, but exposing them, exposing the fact that you have blinders on at all, right? It's exposing the fact that you do use language, which again, you inherited, and you only can interact in a very given specific manner. Um, right, the first step to liberation is exposing the blinders. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and that's, that's where structuralism fits in really well, is that it's, it is demystification. It is, it is concerned with exposing our biases and exposing the way uh, we, we are, we are confined to these boxes. Yeah. So you're a law student. How do you look at the law through this critical theory perspective that you're operating with? Where does that connect up? Uh, so I actually started all my research, uh, actually because of a book club, um, that my professor put on, uh, and, and we started to read some, uh, some Unger. 
um, Roberto Unger. I mentioned him earlier. He's a, he's a big legal theorist, but he pioneered this field we call critical legal theory and critical legal studies, uh, which is another critical mode, um, but specifically situated in the law, right? Using the law as a way to, to understand and, 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 and so yeah, demystification of the law, I guess, is, is really, is really sort of where that ties in. Um, and, uh, so I, I guess really my next my next phase and the way I tie law into this uh, as, as I as I work on this this uh, this piece over the next year um, is to expose the influences that critical theory has broadly uh, on on the law. Right. And the mm-hmm. ways in which we, we can use critical theory as tools to to further demystify the law and, and expose this process. Um, and I haven't I haven't you know, I really don't have a thesis statement yet uh, because I've been just mapping out a lot of things. Um, but like I said, the law connects in a very interesting way because part of the way critical theory operates is to situate, situate these critiques within specific places or modes, right? So for Marx, it was materialism, uh, for, for, for Freud, it's the the brain, the unconscious, you know, the way that all works, um, for the existentialists, it's, it's, it's a bunch of different things, but it's, it's religion. It's the self, it's the individual. That's, that's their, their mode through which they're going to expose critique, um, and, and use critique. And and so for again for the law it's it's critical legal theory is situated in in the law and it's a critique of of the law and a critique of the way in which we understand how the law works and interacts with all of these various other structures like the economy for example right there's a big idea of law and economics mm. um, and the ways in which those interact and reify each other is 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 I think part of the process of exposure and demystification is to show that the law does in fact reify. Uh, capitalism and and certain capitalist understandings of of our reality, right? What I hear you saying when you're talking about the law is there might be subtle ways that legal theory, as it's currently constituted, functions to oppress individual human beings, and by applying the conceptual tools of critical theory to legal theory, we can maybe expose some of the blinders that are present in legal theory to help with that broader goal of human liberation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I, I, I would also, uh, just briefly add as it's on my mind, um, uh, part of this project too, is that critical legal theory is this weird, um, it, it's, it's, it had a moment in the seventies and eighties where it was heavily repressed by like, you know, typical, uh, higher education institutions. So Harvard law wouldn't hire like critical legal professors because they knew their background and they viewed them as, uh, typically more left than than your typical professor and mm. because again the law is so bound up in this like chicago school idea of economics and 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 this kind of archaic version of 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 these interactions um these critical legal theorists in the past few years it's made sort of a resurgence um but it's a very 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 diverse field and in the same way that you know some people will reject the existentialist label a lot of people will reject the cls label um, as, as something that it just, you know, isn't, isn't core to their beliefs or their ideology, but they're still engaging in critique. So they technically might fall under that label. So who you got for 2020? Uh, Sanders or, uh, Warren would be nice, I guess. Like I said, I kind of politics, even as a as a concept, there are some new book I'm reading about politics, because my understanding of that is is changing as I read sort of like more uh, not esoteric, but more surreal, I guess, political theory. Um, I think politics is such a 
useless, stupid thing. But and that's not. I don't think democracy is bad. I think democracy is great. I think mass democracy is awesome. But you don't have that now. It's a fake. Again, it's well. What politics has become is stupid. Yeah, and well, I mean, but I think it's always that's the nature of what politics is. I think to some it's extent, always it's, been that. Yeah, I guess yeah. I'm like too. I'm too ignorant to know what it used to be. Like I wasn't alive, but well, I don't, I, yeah. I guess uh, I was thinking in particular about what it has become in relation to social media and how it seems like it really just is a game show that we're watching. Society of like, the spectacle. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So and you know just how all of political reality now has just literally become a reality TV show, as is evidenced by the fact that our president is a reality tv show host so i think i was just referring to that aspects of politics how it's really become more cultural and more just game show like i guess so so to me my understanding of politics is that it's sort of always been cultural at least just by nature politics is this yeah is, is this interaction of how we best should govern right it's 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 it is this cultural thing Again, because our only way to talk about politics is through a cultural lens. None of this exists without without us, right? And 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 the world state. Again, we don't exist without this inherited system and this massive amount of inherited systems that we use to communicate and we use to generate new ideas. Um, I think Andrew Breitbart said politics is downstream of culture. I think I'm getting that quote right. But it seems like maybe he's not getting out exactly what you're saying. But the idea that just culture comes first, that's always the most fundamental thing. And yeah, that does connect back what we were talking about, just how we're all fundamentally a part of culture and shaped by culture. So anything, any activities that we engage in necessarily take place within the domain of culture. And that includes politics. Yeah, you're fucking right, bro. Damn. Never thought about (laughs) it like that. Uh, I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, no, no, I think that's I think that's the way I've sort of. I've sort of come to appreciate it, especially like that, that what I, what I just did is more or less like invokes a lot of structuralist methodology. Right. And, and, and that's well, yeah, a good way. Seeing it from that structuralist perspective right. now that we've been talking about, and it's so clear. So let's talk about a particular current political issue there, healthcare. Yeah. Right. So you're talking about what's the best way to move forward. Where do you stand on healthcare? Do you, I guess if you're a Warren Sanders supporter, you just think that we should go immediate universal healthcare as opposed Absolutely. to having a public. So I guess the question would be then, why don't you think we should have universal health care, but also not eliminate private health care and allow for that public option? So I think private health care necessarily is kind of destructive and totally unnecessary. It's necessarily a predatory ind- industry, right? Like the whole point is that people pay in, you hope they don't get injured, and then you begrudgingly pay out to people who do get injured while they're on the insurance, right? That's that's like how the, the, the market operates there. Um and, you know, this, this idea that, like, you get better coverage under private insurance is crazy, too, because that's, that's I think that's a faulty understanding, right? Like, you're, you're, you're not going to suddenly have a bunch of worse doctors. You're not, we're not going to be worse off because we go to a, a, a totally uh, universal option. And I think... Well, yes, that's, that's what people always... Well, right. First of all, let me just say, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about when it comes to healthcare. <laughs> My mind's really completely open, truly. But one thing I hear is that... One talking point I hear by the talking heads on TV is like, look, we want three things when it comes to healthcare. We want affordability. We want universalizability. We want everyone to get it. We want high quality healthcare. We can't get all those three things at the same time. I'm sorry. You're just living in a fantasy world if you think that's possible. Right. And you're saying 
we can get all those three things at the same time? I mean, if, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the money, which I think is hilarious. And that, that tends to be everybody's primary concern, right? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? Where's the money coming from, bro? Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, the thing is, we already subsidize. It's, 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 I, I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but it's tens of billions of dollars a year we subsidize to the healthcare industry already. And there are mm -hmm. massive costs associated with that. Yes, there are administrative costs, obviously, but when you consolidate, you're going to eliminate a lot of excessive costs that you don't need, a lot of excessive CEO costs, a lot of things that we don't, don't need to pay for. And if we're already subsidizing it, why not take the, you know, take the full hit? And, and another thing, too, I, I think if, if, for example, we had a sort of, I'm reluctant to, you know, go full in on, on a, on a state-run pharmaceutical company, given the way the United States operates. And, and that, that, that's where I get to the reality of this is, yeah, we do have a certain government system. And, and that's why Lenin said the vanguard class has to come in first and fuck shit up because, if, you know, you can't just elect a new guy and, and everything's going to be fine. We still live in the U.S., right? We still live in this, in this, in this system in this moment. Um, but that being said, if, if you did move to a, to a state-run pharmaceutical company, think about the billions, trillions, trillions of dollars we'll save on production and manufacturing of pharmaceuticals. And, 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 and think about the access that will be generated from, from such a system, right? Suddenly, we're not spending a 15,000% markup on you know, your insulin medication. Uh, but everybody has access to these basic necessities and it's much more efficient. It becomes much more efficient when you don't have a bunch of individual entities struggling to, to get control of these, of these prescriptions, right. Uh, or of these medications. Yeah. So I guess, what would you say to middle-class families who are worried about their taxes going up and who really like their individual doctor and their, their private right. plan, you but who already have access? All of the things you like about your plan, you pretty much can keep anyway, right? It, it, it's not that much of a shakeup. Um, like we have Medicare, Medicaid, those programs as congested as they can yeah, be, they relatively work. The response there is, <clears throat> yeah, well, Obama told us the same thing. He said we could keep our doctor and that wasn't true. Well, so Obama you... did it completely wrong. <laughs> That's the problem there is he did a half-fast approach to, to universal health care, which wasn't even remotely universal health care. There's mm. universal coverage under, again, capitalism uh, in a private system of healthcare. So it, it was it was it was sort of a bastardization of, of what that system could be. And and like I said, like these these as we reduce these unnecessary costs, we can then funnel money into other things like new projects, new hospitals. We just build a bunch of new hospitals and then gives people work, gives people jobs, gives people opportunities. Uh, and then there's there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It's it's very doable. What about the argument that, yes, universal health care is the goal, but to get to that goal, we shouldn't take drastic measures right now. We should, we should get there incrementally. And the next step in that incremental journey is the public option while but, retaining the private system. You know, I, I also think there are realities to the world we live in. Sure. Yeah. And then that, that's what you're pointing to is that, you know, maybe uh, a slow implementation is better, but I don't think it is when we have such rapid turnover in higher stages of government, right? If, if, if we can just get, you know, like, for example, just get Bernie in, have him actually implement a full universal healthcare program, that's going to be really hard to remove. Once you have that, once people have, it's like the fire department. Nobody, nobody dislikes the fire department. They do a great job. They do an essential thing that we need in society, right? Like, we need firefighters, man. Yeah. Otherwise, the half our cities are just on fire all the time. Um, it's the same with healthcare. It's the same with healthcare. It's basic access to, to this, this thing that I think is just naturally beneficial. There's no, there's no downside to having more people on healthcare. 
uh, if, if again, we, we implement it correctly and we do it with full force. I think you have to do it full throated and strong and, and show people that it does work and we can pay for this and we can organize better uh, instead of essentially, you know, kind of being soft about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I hear you. I'm going to continue listening to arguments on both sides, you know? Yeah. I per- personally, uh, I like Andrew Yang a lot from what I've seen of the Democratic candidates, partially because of the, the things we've been talking about. He's actually concerned or he's literally the only 2020 candidate, I believe, that's been talking about the problem of automation in a serious way. Right. His UBI proposal is a consequence of him talking about that. But I don't know. It doesn't seem like he's really a main player, really. So we'll, well see. That. Yeah. And I think I think, again, he wants to. <laughs> I, I, from friend, correct me if I'm wrong, but his understanding of automation is is more just like that. That's why he wants to do the UBI because he wants to just give everybody like a flat sum and be like, automation's not yeah. bad. Like we can do that. And I I don't think an UBI, UBI is like a bad um start, I guess. But like and I, I yeah, said, I'm agnostic personally with respect to UBI. Yeah. I just like the fact that he's actually been talking about the problem <laughs> yeah, because no, I think it is a problem too. So I don't know whether his solution is necessarily right. the best solution. I just don't know enough about that. Yeah, no, no, I. I I, I'm glad it's being talked about. Um, I think I, I I don't know how familiar you are with some of Sanders' views on this, but he's very very open about talking about it because um, he knows he understands the problem with automation. And uh, again, his solution by some is viewed as a little bit more radical, but again by me it's very lukewarm. Like Bernie Sanders is my compromise candidate. <laughs> he's 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 my candidate that I'm just like all right, you know what? This is the best out of a bad bunch. I'm I'm going for it. Um, he's too moderate for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I know that seems ridiculous to so say, but, it. but I, I, like I said, I, I, I recognize that my views are probably in the minority of a lot of people, but, uh, but you know, I, I'm going to vote for the best out of a bad bunch. You know what I mean? Um, because I also kind of genuinely believe a lot of his politics and, and that's, man, I'm getting a lot of crap for this, but I'm going to say it here too. I'm, I won't vote for Joe Biden. I won't like, I won't cast my vote for him. Like if, if he's the Democratic candidate, I just won't vote. I'm sorry. Like you shouldn't be forced to vote for one side of a bad binary that's you think is inherently wrong, right? You, you you shouldn't be forced to vote for somebody you don't believe in at all, at all, right? Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm not necessarily thrilled by Joe Biden. I, I do think it seems to me like he is maybe too old and that's not me trying to be mean, but it is me recognizing that he's going to be, what, 78 if and when yeah, he's but- coming to the I- presidency. Yeah, I I think age for me is less of a concern in that regard, um, and it's more just that like he is the 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 establishment iteration of you know of these horrible policies. He's like he's an iteration of the establishment yeah. policies towards people overseas. And 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 then this huh. is what I was saying. Like I, I got into this fight with somebody the other day um, to to say that Joe Bi- like Joe Biden is going to be better for people in the U.S. Probably is true. Yeah, you know Trump's worse for the environment. He's worse for people in the U.S. Sure, 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 but. Bro, <laughs> Joe Biden's going to be a lot worse for people overseas. Like, regardless of your opinions on everyone, like, Trump is a dumbass, dude. The, the, the guy has no real conception of what's going on, right? And everybody wants to point to his business acumen as some measure of his intelligence, but half of that's inherited anyway. He happened to stumble into a life of extreme wealth and, and a name that was regarded as very, very prestigious. Um, well, on the Joe Biden thing, I think that's so interesting. You're like, he's just another corporate, mainstream, democratic guy. I was listening, I was actually listening to this, uh, <clears throat> an interview with Steve Bannon the other 
the other day. And whatever you think about him, I thought he said something interesting. And that was that the future of politics is populism. It's just a question right. of whether it's right wing Trumpian populism or whether it's Warren Sanders populism. But but whatever, you know, the mainstream Democratic Republican establishment, that's not the future of politics. It is well, going to be a bottom up political movement. And yes. it's just a, where yeah. what ideology is that movement going to represent? Uh, and, that, and that's exactly why Steve Bannon's starting that stupid, stupid uh, uh, academy or whatever in Switzerland. Something he, he bought. I don't know if you saw that, but he bought this like massive parcel of land in the middle of nowhere and is starting like a literal like white nationalist alt right like academy to train like future leaders and stuff. Um, just okay, like but look, from what I've seen, he hasn't struck me. I just got kind of fell down a YouTube rabbit hole the other day where I was just watching a bunch of his interviews and yeah. going into it. I conceptualized him as a kind of white nationalist figure because that's how the mainstream media has portrayed him. But in watching a bunch of his interviews, he didn't strike me as a racist at all. He's talking about what he calls economic nationalism. And that seems importantly distinct to me, at least in the way that he was describing it, from a kind of ethnic nationalism where we're just prioritizing white superiority or something like that. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know enough about his ideology. So please don't take this as an endorsement of Steve Bannon. I'm just telling you. Based on the interviews that I watched from him, I didn't detect that he had a racist bone in his body or that he was advocating for white supremacy or any of these other things that he's typically accused of being by the mainstream media. I mean, Hitler seemed really reasonable when he was talking too, right? Like, okay, let's, let's get there. Let's let's have a Trump <laughs> talk real quick. I, I, it's it's it, no, it's just that notion that you can sell yourself as anything, right? Like you can say economic nationalism, and really he's referring to ethno ethno national. Like he's referring to to an ethnic. Why? How do you know that though? Based on a lot of his the things he's written for, uh, oh my God, he was, he was, good Lord. Um, he still publishes stuff independently, but he was, what was that? Like website, man? What was he on? Uh, Breitbart. Breitbart. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the willingness to associate with literal white nationalist figures like prominently and be totally cool with that is obviously like very problematic and indicative of, I think his, his own beliefs. But you, again, like you can sell yourself as anything, man, you know, like, I could I could be the most hideous racist person on the planet, but you stick me in front of the camera, I can pretend and I can use different words and I can and I can you know mix things up and make it seem like I'm not like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I just don't know enough about Bannon. You might be you might be exactly right. I was just reporting on what I saw. But let's talk about Trump for a sec because nowadays the mainstream media is (coughs) conceptualizing Trump in these Hitlerian terms, right? Where where when he's talking to his base, he's sending out all of these dog whistles. And yeah, Hitler, again, people will make this explicit connection between Hitler and Trump. My basic perspective is that this is complete gross over-exaggeration by the mainstream media. He's not Hitler. He is maybe a buffoonish businessman in the way that you suggest. But I think that this narrative that is being promulgated by the left is just insane to me. I just don't view him in that light. I don't see him as that kind of character. I just always get annoyed that I'm forced to defend Trump because I feel like there are so many legitimate things to criticize about the man. I'm by no means, a, my, yeah. just to be completely open about it, my family voted for Trump. I did right. not vote for Trump. I definitely wouldn't consider myself a Trump supporter, but I find myself defending him because of just the blatant misrepresentations and bad faith engagements with him by the mainstream media. Well, and the that's left. exactly why he's going to win again, unfortunately. I mean, yeah. it, and it, I hate that I'm being pushed into I this know, corner. I, I really do. 
Well, it's because, again, and this, this is, I think, more indicative of having a binary system wherein you have a, a quote unquote right and left, but what you call a Democratic Party and a Republican Party and having this like binary system of governance um, is necessarily problematic because of that very point. But but yeah, I, I think it's it's so much easier for news programs to, to sell this and to point out all the really stupid stuff he does because he does so much stupid stuff. And it's it's so easy to like say, oh, yeah, he said like some horrible comments and to focus on that instead of like the actual policy. Um, mm. And and yeah, it's, it's that that is a fallacy. We shouldn't do that. And I think it, it only is lending more support to his supporters because they, you know, there is a lot of a lot of news that just is meant to draw people in. Right. And just get people entertained. And, and that's that's a big problem with the society of the spectacle, like we said earlier. But the whole guide to bore thing is uh, is just an interesting it's it's yeah. Yeah. I th- Journalism is geared towards sensationalism. Yeah. All the rest of it. Yeah. That's because, again, that's the function of capitalism. It's how you make money. It's how you keep any of these industries afloat. Like, that's why CNN loves to have crazy headlines and crazy shows, because you need people to watch because you need to make money because you need to pay everything. It's it's how that system functions, you know? Um, So just so you agree with me about the mainstream media, then let me give you one concrete example that recently happened. It was after El Paso, where he went down and he said all the right things in terms of condemning white supremacy to my understanding the new york times comes out with a piece that says something to the effect of trump urges unity as opposed to divisiveness right and i thought that was a reasonable headline because it was literally it wasn't even necessarily praising the president it was literally just reporting what he said reporting the facts and the left on twitter and on social media and on the mainstream news outlets they lose their minds that that the new york times would have the goal to even even just paint Trump in a positive light to the most minimal degree. Right. It's like, how can you not see that he's a white supremacist? How could you fall for his words? And the New York Times ends up changing the headline in response to this leftist mob. And that is just, first of all, scary for journalism. I mean, the New York Times, I think, is already has a huge liberal bias from my perspective. So the fact that they they, they they just steer a little towards moderation and this is the treatment they get by the left and then they kowtow to that treatment that itself is horrifying but it just speaks to the bigger problem of being able to uh, unable to separate the message from the messenger i understand that you hate trump but if you just literally take his words what he said after the massacre it wasn't not that bad so it's just taking everything that happens whether it's related to trump or not and subsuming it into this greater Trump is a racist, white supremacist narrative, and he's the one that's sparking this wave of white supremacy. You're not reporting the facts. You're coming into the scene with a narrative and subsuming whatever's going on into that narrative. That's what I see is happening, and that's what really annoys <coughs> me about the mainstream media. Sorry, I'm just ranting now. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> it's 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 an upsetting time, and I. I, I think I have two things to say about that. I think one, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the Hitler comparisons. And, and like I said before, I I think it's outblown just simply because Trump is a dumbass, right? It's not some, there's no incredible machinations going on. It's it's an indictment of the system that somebody so stupid can get elected. And and I mean, we've had dumb presidents before. Presidents have all been pretty, pretty bad. For the most part, we haven't had a great run. Um, and that's just maybe a functioning of the system, maybe just it's how it works, you know, whatever. Um, you know, but but the mob is a bad thing when it's dependent on cultural understandings that are necessarily broken, right? So so there is 
there's potential for, 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 for cultural mobs to change things in, in a good way, right? So if, if everybody, for example, like we're all deciding not to be sexist suddenly, that's great. You know, call people out, like do, do, do all that stuff. Like let's, let's, if you want cultural change, that's how you change culture. And that's part of a function of mass media now is that you can do that in an instant, um, which is, you know, fascinating, terrifying, exciting, all these things. Um, but it is, it is, it is, the mob does become dangerous when we are confined to this cultural understanding that we're in, right? When we are operating within these, these conversations that preclude us from going anywhere else, right? Like we're, we're in this box again, that that's to invoke the structuralists again, we're in this box. We're stuck in this box. I almost, I kind of came into this conversation a little bit expecting that there would be a lot of ideological disagreement. I kind of conceived, conceptualized us as polar opposites on the ideological <laughs> pole because I knew that I was pro-capitalist and I knew that you align more with that communist vision. And it's just so interesting that in talking, so many of our intuitions and beliefs are similar. There's that kind of that existentialist thread that runs through it. And it goes to show that or it, it goes to what you were saying about the human tendency just to think about things in terms of these binaries and how language and concepts color how we think of things. And ultimately, ultimately, the problem with language and concepts is that they do an injustice to the irreducible complexity of existence. Like we, yeah. you and I like are actually really similar in a lot of ways in terms of our ideology. There are probably disagreements and like legitimate disputes but there's so much simul similarity. If you were just a brand, you as a communist and me as a capitalist, people would just say, oh, well, they're completely opposite. But no, right. it's not. You're putting me in that concept and you're generalizing the person. Well, and, and it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah, it's just also I was just going to say it's the same thing in politics. You know, you, you view things like, oh, he's a Trump supporter. And therefore, you think you have a complete understanding of that person's worldview or, oh, he's a Bernie supporter, whatever it is. Right. But just because they support that person, like human beings are so much more complex than that. Maybe yeah. not sometimes, but anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And what you're getting at is, is important. I want to uh, respond in two ways. I think your, your, your first point. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's kind of the heart of what we were getting at is we are both in that same space where we're rejecting ideology. Right. And, and framing ourselves in this binary is just foolish. And that, that's, that's why I, you know, even calling yourself a capitalist, I think, is disingenuous to your beliefs, right? I think that's like, I, and, you know, as we've talked, I'm sure, you know, you're thinking about things, maybe the, your opinions change, right? And like everything changes, but. Of course. But, yeah, I'm just floating yeah. free. Well, and that's, and that's a good thing. Like rejecting ideology in these frameworks allows you to think in a new space. And that's right. why even saying like, we could have the same idea. We just don't have a name for it. You know what I mean? Like you, we say communism and that's a buzzword. And so it has certain associations and certain cultural like feelings, right? You have a sense, yeah. you have the sense of what that means, but we could have a system that works and provides something for everybody and everybody has everything and we are post money and we're post all these things and we can call it whatever we want. But it's, it's, it's about meeting those, those, those needs. Um, and, but I, I want, I just, yeah. I just want to quickly question, is it really possible to be anti-ideology? Because it seems like, I guess it, it's it's not really possible to be that because of everything we've been talking about, about the inability to transcend culture. Any way that you look at the world is necessarily through the framework of some ideology, it seems like. In a similar way, in the philosophy of mind, people will point out that um, 
you can never know whether there's any external reality beyond the mind because you can never truly adopt the view from nowhere. Even if you try to imagine the view from nowhere, you're necessarily doing it from a point of view. And even similarly, even if you're trying to be anti-ideology, anti-ideology itself is a kind of ideology, whether you like it or not. Yeah, yeah. And and that's where we get to sort of some of these Derridian critiques, I think, um, where, you know, we're, 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 we're stuck in this frame of mind. And, and this is this is where structuralism comes comes in as well. Um but we're sort of confined to that mode of uh, communication, right? We're sort of, we, op- we exist in the space and we only communicate and, and can experience life through this space. Mm-hmm. And we can therefore only disseminate ideas having a specific frame of reference that everybody else has. And that, that, that's where you got out with the singularities. You are only a singularity, uh, very predictable um, in such a system. But I, I also, I think this gets to your, your second point before, uh, you talk about um, people committing to, to certain ideologies, and right. uh, 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 this this is where Simone de Beauvoir gets into uh, into this this almost tier list she makes of uh, of, of of freedom. Uh, she talks a lot about ideology, and and she specifically mentions there's something called the a, a serious man, right? Um, and a serious man is someone who recognizes that there's this lack in the self, uh, recognizes that there is this cha- the world is just chaos and there is nothingness. And, and by, by that, I mean, you know, this concept of nothingness in the sense that there is no defined anything and sort of this, it's this Sartre's an idea of like, uh, of radical agency. Again, it's like that man, recon- that person recognizes this lack and this chaos and, Instead of wanting to generate their own um, philosophy or, 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 or outlook on life, uh, they commit to an ideology that exists in the world. And, and these are the people you were saying, like, you know, to call someone, uh, yeah, you can't really generalize people. But at the same time, the serious man is a real person in the world. And so people saying, like, oh, I'm a Trump supporter and committing to that ideology are ideologians. And while, yeah, maybe saying they're Trump supporters doesn't paint a full picture, they are still that serious man, right? They still have right. committed uh, to to this to this ideology. Um, right. Camus would yeah. say that being an ideologian in that way would be a form of philosophical suicide. Right. Because yeah. for right. him, like staring into that void of nothingness that you said, he would just call that the absurd. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah you're absolutely right. absurd. Yeah. Right. So the absurd gets the tension between our our inevitable desire to seek meaning in the universe and the fact that the the universe is silent to our calls for meaning that we can exactly. never discover any meaning in the universe whatsoever so there's this problem of the absurd and for him he he therefore thinks that the most fundamental question is should we commit suicide if right. given this problem of the absurd he thinks physical suicide no you shouldn't commit physical suicide because that's just running away from your problems and not solving your problems and philosophical suicide is realizing that there's no meaning to be found, staring into that void of nothingness that you're talking about, and then going and pretending that there is a meaning by subscribing to some ideology. And he rejected that too. Yeah. And for him, ultimately, he, you know, he thinks that you should embrace the absurd, but, but and and, and be your your Sisyphus, right? And enjoy the struggle. Exactly. What's the what's Sacred the famous the, gods. the the famous cliche that every t- teenager gets tatted? Uh, uh one must imagine Sisyphus happy, right? That, that's, that's, his, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's, his, that's his quote from the myth of, uh, myth of Sisyphus. Um, <laughs> the boulder starts at the same place it ends up, or it yeah. ends at the same place it starts. But Sisyphus, you know, the, the, the point of that is that Sisyphus, when he's struggling, 
enjoys that struggle. Like man enjoys the struggle, right? And and one must one must be happy with that, um, mm. because it, because in those moments of struggle we find clarity and happiness in it. Some sense he, he he thinks that yeah it's pain but it's 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 joy as well, um, and. And, and, you know, and that, that was, that was you know, like you just mentioned, that was his biggest, that was the whole battle with, with Sartre was, uh, I'm, you know, Sartre committed to, to an ideology because he, he, he recognized his biases. He's recognized that the, the ideology might be flawed, but it was better than the alternative. Um, and yeah, and, and, and uh, you know, this, this goes back to, I think, Simone, sorry, I just like always, she's no, just take so, it back to so Simone. Brilliant. So brilliant. Um, but but she she builds on these ideas uh, both both from Sartre and Camus and obviously she was heavily involved with Sartre uh, as everybody knows. Um, yeah. But um, but 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 her next her next tier beyond the serious man was was the the Nietzsche the Nietzschean man. Um, it was this concept that uh, that Nietzsche came up with and she she agreed with some of his stuff but she thought that Nietzsche failed because Nietzsche didn't go far enough and this oh, that's what it is this gets into our her ideas of community but. But this Nietzschean tier, right? Uh, this 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 person who is strong enough to generate their own philosophy, right? So mm. the, the, and because that that was his whole his whole basis was this uh, to to be strong enough to generate your own beliefs and your own sort of philo- philosophical output. And if everybody's doing that, everybody's contributing these massive new things, right? To to this to this world. And eventually, we can sort through all of them and maybe find some better way to live, maybe. Um, but at least it'll be a more free way to live if you're generating your own like uh, beliefs. But where Simone took a turn and said, no, 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 that's not true. Enlightenment, the, the, the final stage is someone who does that, but also lifts all of everyone else out of the darkness. Right. It, it's, it's a communal based understanding of, of Nietzschean philosophy. And, and th- this is this is what I, I agree with heavily. And I think it's a good outlook to have generally. Um, we we are not these singular iterations of the self, right? The self is actually this broader uh, mosaic composed of everything around us too. Like, okay, this is, yeah, let's get into this. I want to talk about the self. The road, the roads we walk on, the, the, the the trees that are a part of nature, that the, all of these things that are part of this natural world are actually part of ourselves because our concept of being, while we do have the subject object divide, I, I, or, you know, there's no evidence that our brains naturally think like that first off. Well, I mean, there is difference, right? There's evidence of difference. We see difference. Like, that's how we understand things is difference. Yeah, right? bro. This concept of the self that you're articulating, it dovetails so nicely with that structuralist output because it's exactly. a kind of it's a fundamentally relationalist notion of the self where the self is this communal entity embedded within this structure of society. And that's what the structuralists say, that when you hone down on any individual thing, you understand that thing in terms of how it's related to other things, whether it be kinship relations, language, or now the self. You're exactly right. That's that's why I freaked out when I, I, got when you, I started bro. reading this in existentialism because I had read The Structuralist and I was like, oh my God, that connection is so clear, right? And it, it makes everything else make so much sense. It makes this narrative that's been composed and it shows you the connection that the and influence that existentialists have had on structuralism and vice versa. And this sort of this sort of process that all bounds itself up together, right? And that's the concept of self I'm getting at is that we are all bound up together. We, yeah, we, and it also it also relates back to um, what individual what human freedom consists in. Going back to right. how we started the podcast, right? Like you have these different systems that all aim to maximize human freedom, but this what does maximizing human freedom mean? Mean if human freedom is t- is inextricably tied up with this community communal thing 
that we've been talking about, then you might be a collectivist as opposed to an individualist. Exactly. Exactly. And that that's why I sort of I think if anything, it's recommitted me to collectivism as I, I struggled a little bit with it. See, you know, but going I mean, through. That's the thing. I'm more on the individualist side still. Like if you were to pull me, I'd be an individualist, man. But the individual is the collective is what is what we're, I, I, I think the point we're getting at. Right. Well, I, I don't I guess I don't know if I agree. I understand. I'm trying to I think I understand your perspective more now, but right. I'm not sure if I want to completely uh, subscribe to all details about it. But I, I and I point to Simone again because I think her point is very apt and I, I really agree with it. But um, but that's that's her fourth tier of, of this like enlightenment is uh, is this notion that we are ourselves more free and therefore more individual in some sense. Uh, and we can actualize a real individuality by also liberating our, you know, everyone around us and our world in some sense, our environment, our, our, our people, everybody, everything. Um, and that's true liberation. That is true individualism. That is the hype of what it means, what your potentiality of your being. You can actualize some crazy, wild, radical version of yourself that you see mm-hmm. in, 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 this, in this new reality, right? In, in this reality that has been liberated.